they say no more, no more they say no more. Hello, and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, we'll be uh, looking at the, the third, I guess, 100 pages or so, the, the final part of the first book of the Baroque Cycle, Quicksilver. So in the previous two episodes, I covered, you know, the first two thirds of this, this book, which is only the first volume of, a, of an eight, vo- eight book, essentially, series. Um, so we're going to pick up with, uh, uh, in 1672 in Grisham's college, our main character, uh, for this section of the epic anyways, Daniel Waterhouse is still working in the Royal Society. Um, and they're at Grisham's college. Uh, and we get some of like the internal politics of the Royal Society played with here, um, such as, um, you know, such as the role of the Jesuits, the Jesuit resistance to the Royal Society. And why do Jesuits matter in England at this point? Well, this is during the Third Anglo-Dutch War. Uh, we talked about the first, Ang- Second Anglo-Dutch War a little bit in the previous episode. Uh, the Third Anglo-Dutch War plays a much more prominent role in this book. Uh, that was uh, that was when uh, Charles II of England, you know, and Scotland, for that matter, and and uh, Louis XIV of France were working together against the Dutch. And they lose that war. They lose that war despite there being a victory, or at least a handful of victories. Ultimately, they lose that war because they simply kind of run out of money. It's, it ends up being like a financing problem as much as a problem of, of sustaining uh, the military forces on the field. So during this period, there's a lot of French influence, a lot of Catholic influence, right? And there's a lot of uh, conflict between the people who are striving for uh, freedom of conscience in England. That's kind of represented by the Wilkins uh, version, the Wilkins, I guess, faction uh, in the Royal Society and elsewhere. The Royal Society, though, is being funded by the fictional character, uh, John Comstock, who is... Uh, not a Catholic, but a p- prominent figure supporting a, a formal u- universal church, uh, a state church in England. So anyways, this Jesuit Riccioli is is critiquing some of the findings of the Royal Society. Um, now, the context of all this as well as the Anglo-Dutch War is the rebuilding of London and the, inve- the use of the Royal Society and Royal Society members to help rebuild London. And we see the reconstruction of of London, the rebuilding of older buildings along more scientific lines, and just, um, you know, the employment of a lot of these people. Hook uh, is the major one. You also have a lot of buildings by Christopher Wren, who doesn't really appear much in the story. Um, but uh, that's, that's a major theme here. Quote, uh, to quote one part of it, um, if Daniel stood on the ridge of the roof facing south towards London Bridge, half a mile away, everything in his field of view bore marks of heat and smoke. Suppose the city were a giant hook's watch, with Gresham College of Central Access and London Bridge marking 12 o'clock, then Bedlam was directly behind Daniel at 6 o'clock. The Tower of London was at 10 o'clock. The easterly winds and its glaciers had preserved it from the flames. 
The wedge of the tower to the bridge was a tangle of old streets with charred spikes of old church steeples jutting up here and there, like surveyor's stakes, literally. This to the chagrin of Hook, who had presented the city with a plan to rationalize the streets, only to be frustrated by a few impediments that have survived the flames, end quote. Now, of course, here we're reminded of this, uh, how not only does capital flow, like, come in after crises. This is Naomi Klein's shock doctrine, right, if you've read that great book. But also after natural disaster, after natural disasters, uh, city planners like to come in and, and rationalize cities, right? And we see this, of course, in Paris in the 19th century, the rebuilding of Paris, but also that's not really after a natural disaster, though. That's just an effort to take excess capital and invest it in rebuilding the city. But you see it uh, whenever there's a major earthquake or something. Plans come in to, to rationalize the city, usually to make it more suitable for the access of capital, right? More for commerce than necessarily for the interests of the people and the communities that are being re rebuilt. But what a disaster does, a fire or an earthquake or something like that, it just sort of, or a war, is it gives the planners the chance to remake it however they want. And in, in doing so, kind of alienate people from, from their city. So we also uh, see this, some of these things connected to the war itself, where England is sort of the naval auxiliary of France in their war against the Dutch, but they're also like a financial tool, quote, um, which this brought Daniel back to the gaze of the tower where, he'd, where he started. The central mystery, where treasure shirts from, as everyone in London now knew, France brought in the gold to be minted into the guineas that paid for all those ships and cannons and for the services of England in its new roles as sort of naval auxiliary uh, to France, end quote. And this is uh, uh, this kind of remaking of the world into a, a global economy is a major theme of this entire series. Um, so a lot of interesting stuff here just on the geopolitics of this and the rebuilding of London and how it ties into this alliance with the French. And then on the, underneath it, there's the politics of this all, which are heightening anti-Catholic sentiment in England and the push for freedom of conscience. And then, of course, we, we run into uh, Wilkins, and I think he's talking with, with Daniel and, and Peeps are, are in this too. And, you know, there's an interesting contrast here. Wilkins believes he has the stone, but believes he has too much work to do in pushing for freedom of conscience. His political work is making it impossible for him to be cut for the stone because that would interrupt his work too much. And then you have Peeps, who was cut for the stone, went through the recovery, and, you know, he could carry around his, his stones with him in a jar if he wanted his bladder stone. Um, now, Wilkins, as it turns out, isn't going to really have die of the stone. He just thought he had it. Again, the, the real dubious nature of, of medical science at this point. Um, but um, this is kind of hanging over Daniels and, and, of course, Wilkins is this idea that he's going to die soon. So we've got a really fun, fun scene here where they, they kind of watch a... Um, Daniel and some of the other people he's with watch a reenactment of the siege of Maastricht. This, so this was a major battle in the Third Anglo-Dutch War, and it was an English victory. And, you know, in these days you don't have news. You don't, well, you don't have TV news. You don't have 24-hour news. You don't have a newspaper in most cases, or if you do, most people can't read. So you have to use culture to sort of display these victories. And so that's what they're doing here. They're basically, they kind of reenact the victory. Some of the actual heroes of it show up. Like I think the Duke of Monmouth, 
who was uh, at that war he was the bastard son of charles ii and a military commander he's there you have uh, an actor portraying louis the 14th there and it's a way of kind of honoring it's kind of like a a triumph in the old roman sense you know the how the romans would have their triumphs this was uh, a way they they did that and daniel's witness to this now i was looking up the casualties in the anglo-dutch war um and they weren't that much let me look it up again here sorry um the third anglo-dutch war so we got uh about 150 warships on both sides, on each side, on the Dutch and the English side, and about 2,000 killed. The Dutch lost two, sh uh, lost four ships captured or lost, and the British, French lost 13, uh, and about 2,000 killed on both sides, right? But the 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 Franco-Dutch war much more massive uh, in terms of casualties, the land war, if you will. Uh, 120,000 killed on the on the Dutch on the French side and 100,000 killed or wounded on the on the Dutch side. 3,400 total military deaths on on all sides. So pretty pretty brutal warfare. And this siege was one was one of the major battles of it. Um, and it was a French victory, but ultimately they would lose the war. But this is like the high point of the battle. Now this battle. Um, the siege of Masterick will be recounted also from another point of view, from a very, very, it was, you know, a very, very young Jack Shafto was there. Jack Shafto is the character who enters the story in book two, uh, volume two, or no, the second book, I should say. It's still in the first volume, but we'll see him in the next episode. And he's was there as well as a, as, as a young soldier, but like a, like a little runner for, um, for John Churchill. But anyways, the Duke of Monmouth there, uh, D'Artagnan is there. I think that's where he's killed. He was, you know, he's known from the Three Musketeers movies, but he was based on a real, real person. And Stevenson uses him as well. So, it, but anyways, this is an advertisement. This, what, what Daniel's seeing here is an advertisement, essentially, of this victory to the English people. Um, now, the year's wrong, by the way. Uh. I don't know if this is on purpose or not. So, uh, like, Stevenson puts it in 1672, um, and it actually happened in the summer of 1673. I don't know if this is just like a parallel universe. There are differences from history, different characters or whatever. But whatever, at least, unless Wikipedia is wrong, which I doubt. Anyway... Um, this, this acting, acting is thematically kind of important in the latter pages of, of Quicksilver as well, because uh, we see Daniel's, Daniel Waterhouse growing up and realizing that his role is to be an actor, essentially uh, not an actor on the stage necessarily, but if he's going to enter into politics, if he's going to be a voice in uh, of the middle class, of the dissenting of the people who advocate for religious freedom and all that, he is going to have to act. He's going to have to be chummy with politics. He's going to have to know how to do that. And he sort of gets a schooled in that. He, he takes on a mistress who's an actress. They attend several plays throughout this. Even, you know, for a while he's working in a play, in a playhouse, using his knowledge as a natural philosopher to create the pyrotechnics, to basically create the special effects for it. Um, and they w go to plays. They go to this dramatization of the siege 
and they go uh you know two different uh different place now this one's called once more into the breaches it's a com it's a comedic pl play and we get sh scenes from it um it's played at trinity college where where newton is and it's and daniel's there and other royal society members there but so is the king is there many other elite people are at this it's actually a visit of the king to the royal society that's that's the context for all this Quote, heading up the cast of the performance was King Charles II of England, situated in the upper floor of Trinity's miserable wreck of a library. End quote. And I love how Stevenson makes him sort of an actor, too, because Charles II, of course, in his public role, is also acting. He's also putting on a facade. He's putting on a face for, for the public. It's during this play that Waterhouse meets the woman who's going to eventually be his mistress, this beautiful actress named Tess who, as I recall, has a pretty horrible end uh, later in the story, but we'll see that. Um, now, the person not at the play, at least not in the beginning, is, is Newton. And there's grumblings, there's talk uh, about why hasn't Newton published much. He hasn't been publishing much, just a, just a handful of papers. And it's known he has discoveries, he has written papers, he just hasn't bothered to publish yet. Like, he doesn't care about that kind of stuff. He's So he's not acting. Newton's not being an actor. He's not understanding kind of how to keep in good with his uh, contacts and his patrons and things like that. And he's snubbing, essentially, the king, right, by not attending this same play. Because um, they're essentially the schools hosting the king. Now, during one of the, like, the interludes between the acts of the play, they're all out in the you know in the hallway outside the theater chit-chatting they talk about various good background context stuff like one is the 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 kind of breakup of the guinea the guinea company which was like the english slave trading company and the loss of, of profit um for this now roger comstock is going to become rich off of this off of the stocks and that's a you know even when these companies lose lose money people are able to make a profit you know, people are going to mess it up, just like in modern times. If, uh, manipulate the stock market to become rich off of it, sell at the right point, buy at the right point, all those kinds of things. These very modern uh, institutions, especially like the stock market, are in their development here. And Stevenson just loves playing with uh, that development of it. But at the same time, we're not re we're reminded of the brutal realities of the slave trade. It's not an abstraction. Uh, I mean, in London, it sort of is. Uh, it is a bit of an abstraction, you know, it's something that's happening far away, but they, they're able to talk about it and saying like, just, just how brutal conditions are in Jamaica, right? Um, and how slaves don't last very long and they have to import women for, you know, to, if the slave trade is going to be disrupted by the war, they're going to have to import more women. So they have a constant supply of slaves. Um, they're losing slave ports in the, in the war, right? So like uh, the Duke of York, who had a lot of money in the slave trade lost some of those african slave ports they'll of course get uh get new york on the other end of this but um kind of as a swap actually that was actually done on the treaty of breda so that was the second anglo-dutch war i remember because i think i didn't talk about it in the last episode but there's even a conversation where they talk about what to name it It'd be too obvious to call it like you can't say it's jamestown that that already exists you got to name it after the duke of york somehow and 
So go New York, but then is that, are you naming it after the city or the Duke of York? You know, they have that kind of conversation. That was in a previous section of it. But uh, anyways, now they're losing slave ports. And this is having this bad effect on the Guinea, on the Guinea company. Um, and the law, generally the loss of the slave trade. But the idea of the slave trade as an abstraction, that's the point I'm trying to make here. It's the, you know, it's, it's what happens, right? It's what Marx calls commodity fetishism, right? That we lose the social realities that are behind the commodities we purchase. And things like the stock market or the, the market itself does this. It's distance us from the actual social relations that produce the products that we use and consume and, 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 and adore for whatever reason. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's everywhere at this time. We're going to see in other books, people have a close relationship still with production, but not so much in London and not the middle class and certainly not the elite anymore. So anyways, during this like intermission, Daniel scoots off to, the, to Newton's lab and um, Robert Boyle's there, John Locke's there, Lefebure is there. He's like that French alchemist who Newton is good friends with. And Newton's there and they're, they're continued to work. And so we, you know, we, Newton, as I said last time, after the first few chapters of the book, he sort of just becomes a, uh, a thing that kind of passes in and out of Daniel's life. He's not a major character, um, especially like in the second volume. He barely is there at all. He's more important in the third volume of the, of the book, the final, final chapters of it. But he just passes it out. And here's one of those intersections uh, in the life of Daniel and Isaac Newton. And we see Daniel is somewhat learning that people have to play politics. So he warns Newton. He says, like, why aren't you at the play? And Newton's like, why would I go to an atheistical play? Why would you go to an atheistic play? Why would you waste your time? I'm too busy. And Daniel basically lays it out for him saying, yeah, you're no people notice you're not there, right? People, you know, you got to stay good with your patrons. If you are not on the good side of your patrons, you're going to lose that patronage and you won't be able to get any work done. And it actually does, surprisingly to me, convince Newton to to go. And so he eventually does return to the to the playoffs and watches the play. Not happily, presumably, but he goes there. Now, the other thing about Newton that's hanging over this is the desire for him to publish. He's only published at this point, they say, one paper in his life. Um, and that was on color, the prism work. And he's got stuff he's done, like the tangents paper is talked about here. I don't know which paper this is referring to, but the tangents paper is um, connected to the calculus, right? And this is going to be so big in the calculus dispute in that Newton didn't publish anything about calculus or not much. And Leibniz was publishing everything about it, right? That's why we still use his terminology and his language and his symbols when we do our calculus because he actually published it. And so it became popular on the continent, his way of doing it. But Newton just sat on it, right? And it's kind of his own fault. And, and Daniel's sort of aware of this and warning him to, to do this. Um, now, there's a discussion here where it's revealed that Newton's already come up with like his three laws. And they're laid, laid out for you here if you don't. It's on page 256. If you've forgotten Newton's laws, they're, on page, they're, they're there. Um, so anyways, later in the day, uh, basically Daniel makes the decision he's going to steal this tangents paper that exists. And he goes into, the, into Newton's lab. And Roger Comstock is there. And he actually blows something up on accident with some gunpowder. 
doesn't really cause any serious damage, but it does kind of fray, blow, you know, blow up in both their faces. And Roger runs away, and Daniel's able to steal this paper, right? This comes up a little bit later in the story, where Roger Comstock admits he didn't know Daniel was in there during that explosion, um, but but Daniel admits he was there. Yeah, so it's a bonding moment of those two characters who become very good friends uh, in the rest of the story. But the key point is he gets the tangents paper and he can send it on to be to be published. So we jump ahead to a year later, 1673. We get an epigraph about Leibniz. And Leibniz enters the story at this point. He's been talked about. People have referenced him. People have read his papers and read his correspondences. But he's not really in the story yet. So Daniel's 26 years old at this point. You know, Newton's about the same age. Leibniz is about the same age. So all these characters are, are of similar age. Um, and the, the, the quote here about Leibniz is actually interesting. It actually talks about computers in a way. Quote, once the characteristics, this is from Leibniz. This is what he wrote. Once the characteristic numbers of most notions are determined, the human race will have a new kind of tool, a tool that will increase the power of the mind much more than optical lenses helped our eyes, a tool that will be as, f be as far superior to microscopes or telescopes as reason is to vision, end quote. Um, which is really, he's kind of talking about the concept of, of, of computers. But the chapter starts out, we got a lot more here on, um, on like New London and the rebuilding of London. That's like an ongoing process that we're, we're privy to as we follow Daniel around. But the main thing here is um, about um, is is the arrival of Leibniz. But there's a few other background things that are pretty important. One is the blaming of the war, the the bad fate of the war, the, the lose the losing of the war, increasingly, and they are going to lose the war, right? On John Comstock, John Comstock, who's the armorer for the for, for the English. He's the one who's building the cannons and building, you know, prepare, supplying the gunpowder. He is eventually going to have to take the blame for the loss in the war and be basically purged from, from government. An old royalist who fought, you know, in the Civil War, he ends up being purged. And this is going to be significant politically uh, in Daniel's life and in his relationship with Roger Comstock. Remember, they're from different lines. These different, different Comstock lines. The John Comstock line is the elite line. Um, closer to the king, more in high politics, Roger Comstock is not. So he's able to get into, he's part of that arist aristocracy that is going to step into commerce, right? Not the old Tories who are going to hang out in their landed estates and fight wars and, and kind of think they're in the Middle Ages still and keep their power in the land. Instead, some of those other lower level lines of the, of the aristocracy will get involved in commerce. They'll become more like the middle class. They'll be in this, the, the market and the, the stock market. And, and I think Roger Comstock represents that type of aristocrat for, for Stevenson. That's pretty key in England in forming, you know, English capitalism. Now, for the French, their aristocracy pretty much stayed more part of the leisure class. They didn't get involved in business this way. And they didn't have that same kind of they didn't have as much of a strong middle class either. So capitalism there developed under different lines, right? And that's another major theme of the book is kind of why France struggled to get these institutions and they didn't have the, 
the class that would really check the power of the king. Remember in 1688, the English essentially fire their king. All right. Anyway, back to Leibniz. Leibniz is here ostensibly for diplomacy, right, to try to work on relationship between the Dutch and the English and repair that and end the war and all that. And, but he seems to be more, more there as a, as a natural philosopher wanting to connect with other natural philosophers to be part of the intellectual climate. And we meet him through three conversations he's going to have with Daniel all over coffee, all in similar locations. He's going to have three conversations with Daniel through the rest of this book. And each will touch on a different aspect of Leibniz's perspective. Now, what we learn here, if you didn't already know it, is that Leibniz was not just a mathematician, not just a technically brilliant person who could actually made early computers. He is a philosopher and he thinks about these things philosophically. He thinks about like, what is the nature of free will and predestination? And he thinks about religion and the nature of God and the nature of knowledge in highly, highly philosophical terms, which is something Daniel didn't really see before among the Royal Society members, right? Now, Newton has his like weird philosophy that God is present in, in everything that happens in the universe at all times. And Leibniz, you know, disagrees with that. But that comes up really a lot towards the later parts of the epic. But, you know, Daniel, you, you notice here is able to talk about, like stuff that he would have talked about with his father, right? Or stuff that Puritans used to talk about in terms of the nature of God or whatever. Leibniz is doing it as a natural philosopher. And this really uh, inspires Daniel, it seems. That's why Daniel would become a, like a Leibzian in his, his approach. Now they meet, and, and, and so Daniel and Leibniz eventually meet, and Leibniz seems to know his way around London. And Daniel's like, well, have you been here before? And he's like, no, but I've seen pictures of, you know, drawings and paintings of, of London. And I studied the streets. And Daniel's like, well, then you're just getting one perspective. And he's like, well, I looked at a lot of them. And therefore, I got many perspectives. And because I looked at a lot of pictures, I basically have a map of London in my head. And this becomes sort of a metaphor. He says, like, if, if you take everyone's distinct perspective, everything's, um, sub everyone's subjective perspective of a thing, you have kind of an infinite series that leads towards the totality, right? Now, of course, one person has one perspective. Two people add to that perspective, but it's still not full, right? A third person adds to that perspective, still not full. Fourth, on and on and on, right? It's like an infinite series. And eventually, he says, you, you know, the one who has omniscience, who knows everything, is, is God himself. But collectively, humanity has that. And a library functions the same way, he tells them. A library gives you all these different perspectives on knowledge, on the universe, on, on truth. None of it reaches true truth, but it's, it's like a limit towards it. Right. So that's really fun stuff. I think the philosophy stuff with Leibniz is great. It's, uh, it's nice that Stevenson includes so much of that in this, this, throughout this series. So they, they go off. He says, I want to see Wilkins. And Daniel's like, well, you better hurry because he's about to kick off. So they go to see Wilkins on his deathbed and um, and they chit chat a little bit about the logic mill, basically Leibniz's progress towards creating a logic mill. By the end of Leibniz's trip in London, he's going to say, I'm going to become a, a mathematician. I'm going to give up on the logic mill stuff. He kind of says, like, I've done all I could on this and I'm 
you know, it's other people can pick it up just as well as me. It's not going to teach me anymore. I'm going to become a mathematician. Now, in terms of the calculus dispute, what's, you know, this is when Leibniz was said to have kind of stolen the, the calculus, right? And so him saying, I'm going to be a mathematician after le leaving London doesn't look good, right? In, a, in the perspective that, you know, he did come there. He learned all this stuff from, from, you know, the people around Newton or whatever, and then he developed it. But we know from our reading of this that that's not really Leibniz's, that's not really how Leibniz got there. It's not, it's not how it looks, I guess. The crime is, is, it's just, it's just, it's just a convenient circumstantial kind of evidence, but it looks bad, right? Anyways, um, so this was all kind of a walking tour of London where they have these conversations. Then they finally sit down at the at the coffee shop and, and have their first like formal, first of three formal philosophical discussions. And he says like, you know, I he's kind of talks about what he's been engaged in, such as remaking the German law for some local princes and things. They also talk a little bit about the hook uh Oldenburg conflict, which I mentioned in the last episode, I mean, where basically Hook, you know, thinks his ideas are being stolen by Oldenburg, who's simply sharing natural philosophy with with uh, scientists on the continent. Um, but they get into the, the core debate and they, they, they go back over the Hook and the snowflake thing. You know, so Hook's saying there must be some microscopic process they just can't see, right? It's just like we don't have powerful enough microscopes. If we do, we could see what that core principle is that makes every arm of the snowflake the same, but each snowflake, you know, unique. And Leibniz points out that this is sort of what the alchemists believe, is that there's some essential principle in, in things. And then they talk a little bit about, like, the logic mill, and could basically a very science fiction-y question, like, can you create a machine that can replicate the human mind, right? If you replace each, if you were to go down into the, brain and find gears you could replace those gears or totally replicate them could you replicate the human mind or something is it just a mechanical process right or is there kind of a soul there this is it's kind of what their discussion gets down to um can can a machine help grasp cognition can it really uh, facilitate or you know develop can it be can it have cognition on its own right so he talks a little bit about like the spoon thing. He says like, your mind can't act on a spoon on its own, right? Like I can look at a spoon all day and I'm not going to manipulate it. But in my mind, I can twist the spoon or change it or add two spoons or I can manipulate spoons in my mind, right? It's only my mind that is doing that. And then the question is, well, why can't this be replicated by, by like a logic mill? So it's a really nice philosophical conversation they have that really reflects, I think, a lot of modern debates over the nature of the mind and things like that and uh, post-humanism and transhumanism and things um, they obviously can't use that kind of language but they're they're really getting close to those kinds of conversations um, and then they talk about determinism which is really where this conversation was going in the first place but they let off at this point basically he says like we've well, rejected the newtonian model of the snowflake thing for the hook model okay but were you predetermined to do that it was inevitable that you would come to that conclusion or you essentially predestined. And that just sets the foundation for the next conversation they're going to have. <coughs> Excuse me.
the next chapter we get is also in 1673. It's set after Wilkins has died. Um, and it's a meeting of the Royal Society. So this is kind of an important moment in Daniel's life. Um, so they have their funeral. Now Wilkins is like, he's a, he's a trouble, he was an important person so in the Royal Society, right? But he was for the freedom of conscience, very publicly for this, which ran him afoul of people like um, John Comstock or even uh, the, the Anglesey's, right? The Duke of Gunfleet. And that's where they're doing this. They're, they're meeting at the Gunfleet house. So this meeting of this is at the Duke of Gunfleet's home. And he's more of like the crypto-Catholic. Both of them want an established church. Um, and Daniel is seen as associating, because he was a Puritan, uh, associating with the, uh, the freedom of conscience people, right? But anyways, they have this meeting about Wilkins' death. It's kind of honoring him. They have a surgeon come in, and they kind of play with him a little bit. Kind of cruel. Because uh, they don't seem to see him at the same level. Doctors in this day and age are more uh, technicians, not really uh, respected like doctors might be now. Um, but anyways, it turns out Wilkins didn't really have the stone. He didn't have the full bladder stone that Peeps had. He just had like kidney stones uh, that may have blocked his urethra, but not wouldn't have killed him necessarily. Um, and then how he was like the drugs he was on and the opium and the other things that maybe contributed to his death. All right. We have some other side conversations about like Roger um, and Daniel have a conversation. Basically, Roger's given up trying to be a natural philosopher and he's become rich on the, the slave trade, essentially, um, and other stocks. Uh, they talk about the lab explosion and things like that. And, and he, and he kind of says to Daniel, you know, you're going to need a patron. You're not going to be able to make it in the Royal Society anymore with Wilkins gone. You're going to have to kind of find your own way. And I'm willing to basically be your patron. Um, and we're going to find out why later on, um, why that is. But there's so much here about capitalism through the character of Roger Comstock. Uh, he says this, for instance. It's much better I know things. Certain of the golden Comstocks immigrated. All right, all right, some would say fled to Holland in the last century. Settled in Amsterdam. I went and paid them a visit. From them I knew that de Routier was taking a fleet to Guinea to seize the Duke of York's slave port. So I sold my Guinea company shares while they were still high. And from the Anglices I learned that King Louis was making preparations to invade the Dutch Republic, but I could never stage a campaign without purchasing grain first, purchasing it from you'll never guess where. No, Daniel says. Just so. The Dutch sold France the grain that King Louis is using to conquer them. At any rate, I took my money from the Guinea Company shares and took up a large portion in Amsterdam grain just before King Louis bid the price up. Voila. Now I got... So anyways, now he's rich. Super rich. Basically through insider trading uh, techniques or whatever. You know, no, he's in the know. And he's high enough that he has this information and he's smart enough in financial matters to apply it. Not like the old aristocrats who, the landed arist aristocracy, who just sit in their their estates and spend all their money on fancy clothes and all that nonsense. So that's going on. We have another little fight between about Hook and Oldenburg that comes up quite a lot here. But the key thing is at the at, towards the end of this meeting, John Comstock, who's still president of the, basically the patron behind the Royal Society, comes up to to uh, 
uh, Daniel and starts complaining, starts bitching about free thinkers and says, you know, there are people who think there shouldn't be an established church, but there will be. And maybe I'll be gone and maybe the Duke of Gunfleet will be the new head of the Royal Society. But either case, there's going to be an established church, right? Either he's going to be right or I'm going to be right. Freedom of conscience is not going to happen. And then Daniel gets a little defensive thinking Wilkins is being attacked and John Comstock says, no, it, you're wrong. I'm, I'm after you. Basically, this was his diplomatic way of saying, you're out of the Royal Society. You can't be a part of the Royal Society anymore. So so then that's when I think Rogers comes to him and says, like, why don't I be your patron? I'm building this new house. In fact, I bought a bunch of land from your family. I'm going to build a huge house there. And why don't you be my architect? And then, you know, you, I'll, I'll patronize you in some way. And Roger, that's kind of takes on that role of helping Daniel be like a public figure, a kind of political figure, and someone like someone independent of the Royal Society, anyways. So uh, then we have the second of the Daniel and Leibniz uh, conversations, which is about all about cognition and free will right so if we if the mind is like a mechanical process like the whole universe right then how do we have any free choice at all everything is predetermined right and naiveness wants to believe there is still free will because he's a good lutheran right so he still believes we have that free will but he also seems to be moving towards this more mechanistic view of the mind and this is what he says he says, God arranged things from the beginning so that the mind could understand nature. But he did not do this by continually meddling in the development of the mind and the unfolding of the universe. Rather, he fashioned the nature of both mind and nature to be harmonious from the beginning. End quote. So this is, this is going to be the heart of his conflict with Newton eventually over deeper philosophical matters. Newton's thinking God's involved at all times in everything that happens in the universe. Leibniz saying, basically, no, we, we're in this great machine. Um, and of course, this will be the position of like deists later on. Uh, anyways, I've been skipping the chapters on the Minerva because not much happens about those. It's just, there's always these, fla these flash forwards to 16, 17, 13 and the Minerva. And basically, they're just, they get away from pirates. That's all you really, that, that really matters. Um, so uh, next chapter. Okay, so the next chapter is still 1763. Uh, it's set in London as well as most of these chapters are. And we witness, it's called The Fall of the House of Ham. And it's kind of a fun chapter because uh, you you find out that at the end of the war, the King of England, Charles II, basically stopped, says, I'm going to stop paying. We're going to stop paying off all our debts. You know, we're not going to honor any of our old debts. Now, this is this causes like a run on the banks because what happened basically i mean the house of ham is the focus of this chapter and that's of course daniel's brother-in-law and he was a banker right he was a goldsmith turned banker and he ended up loaning a lot of money to the king but so did all these other goldsmiths like the whole goldsmith district were all little petty banks and they were all loaning money to the king and they were issuing out new loans basically they were taking people's deposits right gold deposits and then lending them out right with those banknotes or whatever and sometimes literally to loaning out the gold but that's fine because people are going to pay back in gold the debts that are owed 
and then you know people don't want to carry around this gold they're fine carrying around the the bills of the the banknotes right the paper money so as long as no one actually collects the gold right i can, i don't need gold in the vault necessarily right because i'm going to constantly have new gold coming in right this is how banking works it still basically works this way doesn't it all, all money is essentially debt but once the the biggest debtor of them all is the king and so once the king says i'm not going to pay these debts anymore then that bankrupted all these uh banks because they they literally had no money left anymore they're completely empty um and so rumors start to float that oh you're not gonna be able to get your gold back from from ham and that's what happens and so there's a run on the bank essentially not just ham but others and then this leads to like protests and riots not the riots of the lower, lower class burning you know so and so in effigy riots of the middle class and and stevenson has a little fun with how he presents these rioters as basically crazy um you know crazy angry middle class people uh, protesting uh or, or elite people but their money's in this bank and it's all been given to the king who squandered it and he's not going to pay any of it back um so they actually go down into the vault ham killed himself or died of a broken heart or some he's he's gone but uh it's like uh it's daniel and it comes from other water houses um the the like the financial minister uh the, the high lord chancellor is there uh richard anthorpe who's the the head of banking they all go into the the vault basically the basement where all the gold is being stored and it's all empty it's like nothing is there at all it's completely empty so it's uh this is a great commentary on just the fragility of this early banking system right and you might know where this goes and stevenson does go there in future volumes of the book is eventually you create a, a national bank right that can be the steady source of loans to the king right and can form a national currency a national paper money all these things we know you don't have these privatized uh you know ad hoc kind of banking system you have a centralized banking system and that's what they're able to do and what france isn't able to do in this period of time other similarly you see okay we the guinea company went belly up and bankrupt well we're just going to form a new royal africa company we're going to create a new company that's going to be involved in the slave trade right and you know that too and even like Anth uh apthorpe the you know the men you know the head of the of the financial systems of england fictional i think yeah he's fictional in the book yeah uh, he's he's uh actually stevenson gives us a very handy uh list at the end of the first volume with all the major characters and in italics are fictional characters if they're not in italics they're they're, they're real people um, so the cabal was real but the members um were were, were all fic all, were all f stevenson's creations but apthorpe is one of these fictional creations but he's that like the head of the bank and he says well this is actually an opportunity right to create a new banking system um which is i think foreshadowing the the bank of england so anyways um the dutch are victorious basically the the realm has been driven to bankruptcy the we have a riot of the middle class where daniel and others are almost like killed by this riot but you know the house of ham is burned down by the riot they have to flee and all this so um then we get the third conversation between 
uh, Daniel and Leibniz. After after Daniel escapes this mob of of rich people who have lost some of their money, uh, he sits down for the third time with Leibniz. Leibniz has decided to return, having failed to uh, in his diplomatic mission. He you know maybe he's had some successes successes in, as a natural philosopher. And they talk about infinite series, which is kind of like how we talked about knowledge before, how we all have a little window into into knowledge, but collect like together. We, we, we don't quite reach, but we get close to omniscience, but we never can quite reach it. Um, and he talks about infinite series and things like that. And, and he says, I'm going to go into math because math is really uh, where my philosophy can be explored uh, most adequately. So after this, we have a conversation between Daniel and Hook. Most of this book is just different conversations, of course, at least at least early on. But uh, a conversation about who's going to be blamed for the war. Someone has to take the blame, right? And it's going to be John Comstock. And there's been some like shenanigans behind the, the scenes. So we, he has a whole conversation here, Stevenson does, about like how cannons work. So early on, you'd actually have a big bucket, a big barrel of gunpowder the gunners would scoop it up pour scoop up in, in a cup right the gunpowder put it in the in the gun right but what they started to replace this with was because that spilled gunpowder everywhere and it was liable to blow up the whole ship you know especially imagine you have a train of debris of gunpowder leading from the cannon all the way to the barrel that you drew it from right that seems a real disaster uh, in the making so instead what you get is just uh these bags filled with gunpowder right and since it's just a bag you can just throw it in yeah and that will shoot off the cannon great all right the problem is that could be tampered with so this the and what happened on some of these ships is like there's, there was like some finely grind ground gunpowder put in some of these and it actually blew up some ships it killed a bunch of sailors and so it looked like a manufacturing error now I think Hook reveals that this was actually a, a scheme by the by the Anglesey's to discredit John Comstock, and it works. John Comstock eventually is he is a uh, blame for this and kicked out of government, kicked out of his position. And I think that's a uh, that when you compare the two Comstock lines, the John Comstock, the Silver Comstocks being old fashioned tied to the king right based on land they are vulnerable to these political machinations they don't have a role once he's out so once he's out of power there's really nothing for him to do right he's kind of lost but roger comstock the younger generation from the other line that didn't have the, the all the landed estates and the prestige they're able to become wealthy they're able to become part of that the capitalist class essentially but we kind of this volume sort of closes with the fall of this Comstock line. Um, then uh, Roger Comstock actually meets up with Daniel and says, "You've been called to the palace to see the signing of the document that's going to offer uh, religious freedoms." Um, actually, uh, this is the religious tolerance, right? Not religious freedom. I'm sorry, they're different. Religious freedom is usually conceived of like like the jeffersonian sense like no established religion and no interference in people's religious lives right you can worship whatever you want religious tolerance would usually be 
there's going to be a state religion, but people of certain other religions, not all, but certain other religions will be able to practice freely within certain confines, right? Like the Edict of Nantes might be conceived as religious tolerance, but that was eventually taken away, of course. Um, so this was the Royal Declaration of Indulgence, and this was signed in March 1672. So again, Stevenson has the years wrong. Um, or unless he's talking about the Test Acts, but the Test Acts required some following of, um, or at least it required them to deny Catholic, being Catholic to work in government. I think it must be talking about the Declaration of Royal Declaration of Indulgences. So the year, the year's off again, and maybe Stevenson just changed years a little bit here and there because it works for the narrative. I didn't think anyone would look stuff up on Wikipedia enough to matter, but I, I looked it up. But I don't mind. I don't care. Just, um, anyways, Daniel's like, why me? Why does the king want to talk to me? And Roger says, well, you're like the head of the dissidents now that Wilkins is gone. Daniel's like, no, I'm not. He's like, fine, you, you're good enough. You'll be the public face of dissent. You'll be like kind of institutionalized as the voice of dissent. That'll be good for you. And Rogers, Rogers says, okay, let's dress you up. And so there's a couple pages just about him getting dressed, like getting a new wig. Rogers gets some clothes. He's like, you're not fully dressed yet. You need like a mistress on your arm. So they go with a test, the actress from the theater. Say, okay, you're going to hang out with Daniel for the day. Pretend to be his mistress because if you don't have a mistress, people are going to look at you weird and think you're a crazy guy. You can't go out to see the king without a mistress. It's kind of funny. Um, so, anyways, they do that. Tess is all ready to go. She's an actor, so she's able to act. Um, and and that night, they, they bang, right? And she leaves a note, which is really nice. It's, it says, okay, we're going to do this again. I'm going to be your mistress in li in real life, not just acting from now on. You know, but Roger paid my acting bill before for the role i played but if you're going to be my mistress you're going to you know a gift would be required right so he has to start paying her of course roger's paying him now roger's his patron and some of that money is going to go to maintaining tess as this mistress so he's becoming kind of institutionalized and this is the end of daniel's arc in quicksilver so he's gone from being this young student um in his late teens to being you know, his late 20s, but being sort of institutionalized, having this public patron dressing the role, right? Having this mistress uh, kind of, you know, his dad would have been horrified to see what he had become, right? But, you know, still doing natural philosophy, but more independently, right? After being exposed to new philosophical ideas from Leibniz, he's able to break free of the influence of Newton and even of Hooke. And others he's, he's got the tools intellectual tools to kind of think for himself about natural philosophy um, so it's a wonderful character arc i think these three uh these last three episodes we just looked at one book one of the eight books but it does such a good job of defining who this character is and making him really uh, well realized so um i guess that's it i guess that's all i'm going to say about uh the first volume of quicksilver in the next volume, we're going to in the next three episodes, we're going to look at book two of of um, the Baroque cycle called the King of the Vagabonds, which is about uh, mostly a about Jack Shafto, who's uh, he's about, I want to say, 10 years younger than 
than Daniel. The book it picks up about it picks up I think in uh, when in, in 1683. So it picks up about ten years later. Um, with a much younger character than Daniel, um, but it lived from a very different class and lived a very different life, right? But also London, he's from London or somewhere, but he basically is from the super lower class and he's basically a vagabond, homeless for much of his life, worked in various militaries as a mercenary, you know, did different criminal things at various times, but basically tried to survive. And he's going to meet uh, a slave girl who from a young age has been enslaved, uh, enslaved by a Frenchman actually, but put, you know, sold off to the Turks. And she was basically being kept as a virgin for some special event. And so she, but she's very well educated because she's been in a harem. And so she learned a lot. And they're going to meet at the siege of Vienna and then go off and try to get rich together. And they're going to have a bit of a, a, it's a very weird romance because Jack has syphilis and he lost half of his penis in a, in a, syphilis treatment that went wrong um but they are going to have a very close relationship even though they only knew each other for like a year closely but she's going to go off and become a, a court presence you know by the third volume but this one is it's more about her trying to build her place um being a former slave build her place in european society through money right and jack's resistance to that unable to make that transformation himself so while uh, daniel had this really interesting compromise with power jack is not going to be able to make that compromise with power at least not yet in his life and eliza you know is able to use her beauty and her brilliance to to kind of move her way into a high society eventually so we meet those two characters we meet eliza and Jack in book two, Daniel's gone. We don't see Daniel again until book three. So, but it won't be long, just three episodes. So I'll, um, over the next three episodes, we'll talk about King of the Vagabonds. But if you have any thoughts about the first book, Quicksilver, not the whole volume Quicksilver, just the first three chapters of it, or first three, uh, first 300 pages, I, sh I mean, of it, let me know. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, so I'll see you next time, um, and it'll be a lot of fun. Very different topics, very different themes, although there will be themes that intersect. Like, most importantly, money is going to be one theme that intersects. War also, but we see it from different perspectives. So that's going to be it for now. I'll see you next time. Much less than much less man, the much less much. Man.